Then again, huh? Is that what it is? Okay. Um, we are continuing in this like mini Lenten series as we've been going through. Uh, we started looking at Pontius Pilate uh, last week, and oh, there we go. They, they did get the PPT. So um, this week we uh, look at um, this scene of the crucifixion uh, as we approach. And uh, before we do so, again, I'm going to ask if you could just join me in a word of prayer. Uh, so if we could just go to the Lord and let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to open up his word to us. Father, thank you. Um, as we come to you, Lord, uh, through your word and we look at this scene here, uh, Lord, we look at Jesus and we look at what he's done, uh, the work of salvation on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, may, uh, may you just apply it to each of our hearts, our lives, and the different situations. And Lord, may our hearts be able to find true rest because of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, last week we were looking at this scene in John chapter 18 and looking at Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders having uh, kind of having their own little agendas going on and they're posturing against one another. Um, Pontius Pilate, in a sense, trying to spare Jesus, the Jewish leaders having this agenda to have him crucified. And we know that Pontius Pilate then gives in. He gives in to this pressure uh, to the Jewish leaders. And, uh, you know, he has, Pontius Pilate himself has these reasons why he has to give in. Um, he has his own uh, hidden agendas, his own political career at stake, and all of these things. So he gives in to that. And this scene, I think, in Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders is really meant to be a scene, I think, that describes many of us as well. Um, that ultimately, when we are confronted with who Jesus is, it's impossible to remain neutral. You have to choose. You can't just, Pontius Pilate was, I think, trying to straddle the fence a little bit. He was trying to you know, placate the Jewish leaders, but he also wanted to spare Jesus, and he was trying to scheme and come, come up with all these devices and plans of how he can kind of get his way. But uh, with Jesus, that's impossible. You can't just simply come to Jesus on your terms and try to say, well, Jesus, this is my plan, this is what I want, and this is how I'm going to figure things out, and this is how I'm going to control everything. Um, when you are confronted with Jesus, you've got to make a choice. And the choice is, do you follow in your plans? Do you try to save yourself in a way? Or do you just put your trust in Jesus? Do you surrender to him? But it's impossible just to be in the middle ground. You can't do that with Jesus. And we were talking about this in our CG uh, this past week. Uh, Tuesday night and uh, the discussion on uh, this confrontation and uh, really without Christ in our life, without Christ in our hearts, we are prone to be like Pontius Pilate, right? Uh, we are prone to try to come up with our own ways. Uh, we're prone to give in to pressure or to what people think to the culture, to capitulate. This is what we're prone to do. 
but we need Christ to save us. And so we come to the scene um, here in John chapter 19. And we're going to look at this, and I'm going to just describe what's going on in the scene a little bit, and then um, I'm going to just try to work out the implications of this uh, the best I can. So uh, let's turn back to the text here in John chapter 19, uh, verse 16, and let's look at what's going on here. It says, as you know, Pontius Pilate, as he hands Jesus over to be crucified, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Gogotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And it was very customary at that time that when someone was ordered to be executed, that they had to bear their own cross. And as they're bearing this cross, uh, they're going outside of the city gate, this place called Golgotha, and they're going along this route called the Via Dolorosa, um, and heading to this place of isolation um, outside the gate also known as Calvary. And this is, you may have heard of this term, Calvary, but it's the same thing as uh, the place of the skull, or Golgotha. And likely because it resembled or looked like a skull. And then it says in verse 18 that they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Um, John doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about the crucifixion, but we know that victims, when they were crucified, were stripped naked. They, their arms were placed in these, um, these vertical, this vertical beam. They were either, their hands would either be nailed to this beam or they would be tied uh, to the beam. And crucifixion, um, you know, there's been a lot of research, there have been, been a lot of studies done about the nature of crucifixion itself. But the way the victims would die, it's this very, very agonizing, slow death in which you would just gradually lose breath, air. Uh, you die by asphyxiation, just not enough oxygen to the brain, just eventually giving out. And this heart failure. Um, and this pain was more, more than physical, was the shame of it. Uh, Josephus, this Jewish historian, describes it as the most pitiable of deaths. Uh, Cicero, who is a Roman poet, calls it cruel and dis this disgusting penalty. And it was so cruel that no Roman citizen uh, could ever be subjected to this type of punishment. And after even the third century, the word cross became this vulgar uh, word, a uh, taunt among the lower class. Now, John, in this uh, gospel, he actually doesn't go into much detail talking about the nature of crucifixion itself, the physical aspect of it. And the reason why he doesn't go into much detail about it is really because the physical pain of the cross was really not the point. It wasn't really the point of the cross. Um, many of you guys have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? Uh, Mel Gibson. So uh, this movie came out several, several years ago, and... If uh, this movie depicts basically the final uh, 24 hours of Jesus' life, um, 
starting with the scene, the Garden of Gethsemane, the prayer, and then the betrayal and all of these things. And if you look at this movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, Mel Gibson, the way he, he portrays the cross and the, what crucifixion is all about is he goes, it's really, it, it goes much into the, the physical agony and torture that Jesus had to endure. But one thing about this movie is that um, as you watch this movie, people are very touched and uh, many people end up crying. But you don't really, but just by watching this movie, you don't really understand what the purpose of the cross was all about. And um, Mel Gibson, I mean, this movie, it doesn't really go into that. But there's a reason why Jesus had to come to the cross. And the gospel writer here, John, but the gospels in general, they're not so concerned with the physical suffering as they are concerned and they're focused on the purpose of the cross and the spiritual meaning of the cross, uh, what Jesus had to do there, and we'll get into that. But John does talk about that with him there are two others, one on either side, and Jesus was between them. And Jesus here, he's crucified next to these two common criminals. Um, In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 prophesies about this, that the the future Messiah, he'd be numbered with the transgressors. And Matthew and Mark, their gospels identify these uh, crucifixion victims as bandits, probably revolutionaries, just like Barabbas um, from last week that we read about. But what's interesting is this. Um, the Gospel of Mark describes this interesting scene where James and John, they're approaching Jesus. And they're approaching Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, we want to be able to sit on your left and your right. This is what we want to do. And in a sense, they're seeking glory. Right? They're seeking to be honored by asking Jesus to be, to be seated on his left and right. And Jesus says, it's not for me to give these places away. But will you be able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And Jesus, at the cross, this is a place of utter humiliation, right? It's, it's a place where he's not being glorified at the cross. It's a place where he has to go through this. And the two um, that he's next to, it, uh, it just highlights this, this, this shame, this this, uh, this humiliation that he he's, has to go through. And in a sense, you have human nature and you have James and John seeking the glory, seeking, um, seeking to be honored. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, then this is what you're going to go through as well. Well, in the next several verses, uh, John introduces us to four groups of people. Pilate, uh, the Roman governor, the Jewish leaders, Mary and her companions, and the soldiers. And in verse 19, uh, John records, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. 
Uh, Pilate writes these words and it's, you can almost feel or you can almost imagine as if, you know, Pilate is, Pilate is, is just trying to rub it in with the Jews, right? With the Jewish leaders. Uh, he wasn't successful in being able to free Jesus, but at least this is his way of saying, well, Jesus said, I'm the king of the Jews, and this statement stands. And what's interesting is this is more truthful than even Pilate realizes. But this sign is written in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. And Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. Greek was the official trade language of the day. Uh, Aramaic was the language of the Jewish people. So everyone can know who Jesus is, this identity. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And again, every single detail of this crucifixion scene has been prophesied beforehand. And in Psalm 22, verse 18, which John is quoting here, that they divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. Um, down to the very details of this, it's all been ordained by God. So the soldiers did these things in verse 24. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And we move on to this next scene uh, in this narrative. And in contrast to the soldiers whose hearts are just callous, right? They're just, all they're thinking about is, how can I... How can we get his clothing, right? How can we benefit from this? You have Mary and Jesus' aunt and Mary Magdalene. And in this scene, um, and among the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually John's Gospel here is the only one that mentions these words specifically here. Woman, behold your son. And behold your mother, these words of Jesus. And before that, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 2, verse 35, when Jesus was, in a sense, being dedicated, and when he was, um, when he was born, you have this guy named Simon. And Simon, in Luke chapter 2, verse 35, he he sees Jesus. He's the consolation of Israel. And he's been waiting his whole life for the fulfillment of the scriptures for the Messiah to come. And Simon says something very interesting to Mary at that time. And he says to Mary that there will be a sword that will pierce your heart. And as Mary is hearing this, she probably doesn't fully understand what that really means, a, a sword that would pierce her own heart. But Luke talks about how she just pondered these words in her heart, like just kind of meditating on these things and trying to think about what, what would, uh, how these things would be fulfilled, what's going to happen. 
she didn't understand all the implications of even who her son was and what he would ultimately do. Um, so she's thinking, she's thinking about this, and it's for a mother as she's witnessing the crucifixion of her son on the cross. Uh, as you know, there's something different about a mother and her love for a son, for a child that's very different from even like a father, right? Uh, as parents, we, you know, fathers, mothers both love our children, but there's something very, very unique about the mother's love and care for her own child. And you can only imagine uh, the pain that's going through mother, uh, through um, Jesus' mother, Mary, as she sees Jesus hanging on the cross. And in the next scene, in Luke chapter 2, um, it records this Passover feast. Um, so in Luke's gospel, it moves straight from this, the birth or the birth of Jesus and this dedication to talking about when Jesus was 12 years old. And every family was, would make this trip. Uh, if you're a good Jewish family, uh, you would make this trip to Jerusalem and you would observe this Passover feast. And in Luke chapter 2, and again, Luke's gospel is the only one that records this of all the four gospel writers. But um, at this Passover feast, Luke records how Jesus was just at the temple and he's dialoguing with the Jewish leaders, uh, the teachers. And they're, ask, he's, they're asking him all these questions and he's answering all these questions. And the, the gospel says that they were just absolutely amazed at the, the level, the depth of understanding of Jesus at age 12. Uh, here this boy is, but he's able to confound uh, all these teachers who've been trying to study the Old Testament all their life uh, with his understanding of the scriptures. But at that point, um, Jesus' parents, you have Joseph and Mary, but they end up leaving they try to go back home, and as they're going back home, they realize, wait a minute, you know, where's Jesus, our son? And they realize that he's been left behind. And so they go back, and they find Jesus dialoguing with the teachers. And Jesus says these words to um, his parents, but he says, well, I have to be about my father's house. This is why I came. And so this is all coming together in this scene. That at the cross, uh, Mary is beginning to understand what Jesus came to do. Why he had to come. He had to come to go to the cross. He had to be about his father's house. Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And in our ears, when we hear these words, woman, um, it may sound a little bit cold, right? Just, you know, we don't address our mothers this way. We don't say woman, right? But in this particular culture and in the word that he's using, actually the real idea of it is dear woman. Uh, it's this real, real respectful, very respectful, polite uh, term, dear woman. And presumably at this time, uh, Jesus' mother is probably, Mary is probably in her 50s. Um, presumably, her husband, Joseph, has passed away. 
she has very little to no income at this time. And um, in that culture, it was, it was the responsibility of the oldest son to take care of the family, to take care of their parents. And at the cross, we see Jesus, even at his death, he is trying to take as good care of his parents as possible. And so he says, this is your son. Um, and behold your mother. Would you take care of her? Would you be responsible uh, for her, for me? And John, as a disciple of Jesus, takes in Jesus' mother. Uh, this is not only a picture of, I think, how Jesus is fulfilling what it means to be a good son and to honor his parents in that way. But it's also a picture for the church, right? Just as John uh, takes in uh, Jesus' mother, uh, the church, we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have this responsibility towards one another to take care of one another. And this is what Jesus is even showing at the cross. And through his death, his resurrection, through his life, the church will be born. Well, in verse 28, John goes on and he says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. I thirst. And we know that this is, again, a fulfillment of what Psalm 22, uh, 14 to 15, what the psalmist writes when he says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. But, he's, but this is even down to here. Jesus says, I thirst and it's a fulfillment of that itself. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the words of Jesus on the cross, what do you notice about these words, right? Jesus is honoring his mother. He's speaking of his thirst. Um, and even we know some other gospel writers, they talk about Jesus says, you know, forgive these people. They do not know what they're doing. They, uh, they're acting out of this ignorance. But these words that Jesus is speaking are all these gracious words that are coming out of his mouth or words of his own need, uh, his, own, um, his own place of desperation. Most people... Most criminals at this time would probably be just cursing. In fact, one of the gospel writers writes how one of the persons nailed next to Jesus was just, just cursing. But when you look at Jesus and you look at the way that he is responding to all the mistreatment, to the injustice, uh, there's not one word of bitterness coming out of his mouth. There's not one word of resentment. There's, not, there's no anger um, there's, not, there's not blaming. There's none of this coming out of the words of Jesus. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, Peter writes this. that Peter says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not 
threatened, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is what Peter writes. And Jesus is able to, he's able to speak these gracious words because Peter says that he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And this is really the basis, even for you and I as believers, you know, when we're reviled or when things, when people speak against us or when our reputation gets tarnished or um, we're treated unfairly or unjustly or we're mistreated in different ways, the basis for why we can respond with graciousness and we don't have to try to get back at people is because we believe in a God who judges justly. We believe that God is the one who sees all things. And we can entrust everything over to him. This is the basis why, um, one of the reasons why we can actually show forgiveness, why we can show grace to people. Aside from the fact that you and I, even though we deserve the opposite, uh, we deserve punishment that we've been treated with grace and mercy because of Christ. But Jesus was entrusting himself to God, to the Father, uh, who is the one who judges all things. In verse 29, uh, the gospel writer goes on to say, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and, it held it, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, in this final scene, um, or in these couple of verses right here, we find exactly why Jesus comes to the cross. This is what the Passion of the Crisis movie did not depict uh, for us or did not explain to us. But right here in these two verses, a jar full of sour wine, uh, as he's thirsty, these soldiers, even though they're, they have this callousness about them, they're just looking for Jesus' garments, they, they, they probably see the way that Jesus is dealing with all of this on the cross and this graciousness. They sense something different about Jesus. They sense that Jesus is... Uh, they, they haven't seen any kind of criminal ever hang on the cross like Jesus. And there's this compassion. They didn't have to give him this hyssop, this sour wine. They didn't have, it wasn't this thing of mockery to Jesus. It was this act of compassion to give him this sour wine. And they put it on this hyssop branch and they hold it to his mouth. And the hyssop branch is interesting because this hyssop branch is actually this bushy plant, uh, blue flowers, but it is the exact same kind of plant that was used for the sprinkling of the blood on the doorposts of the Passover in the book of Exodus. So right here, we have the picture of what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is a picture of this, the blood that would be shed that would eventually cover over all of our sins, sparing us from death. This is what the hyssop branch is. And it's also, the hyssop branch was also the same, uh, the hyssop plant was also the same as used, what was used in the purification sacrifices uh, in the temple as well. So John is careful to include this detail in this scene right here. 
And then he says, Jesus' final words is, it is finished. It's brought to a completion. It's brought to an end. It is finished. Everything that Jesus came to do has been completed on the cross. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, kept talking about this work that he's got to do. This unfinished business that he came for a particular job. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is why I came. John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus says in this prayer before the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But this, this, there's this work, and uh, I've accomplished it. I'm, I'm, he came to be obedient to the Father to, to do what the Father sent him to do. And what was this work that Jesus came to do? Well, the very beginning of the Gospel of John states the very purpose of why Jesus came to the earth. In John chapter 1, as John the Baptist sees Jesus come on the scene, he simply points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We were having our uh, Bible study on Friday night uh, with, the re- with the Renew group. And um, actually Helena made this great observation um, in this Bible study. And here, these, these prepositional phrases, she pointed out, the Lamb of God. I mean, it was a brilliant observation. But not just an ordinary lamb, right? Not just your typical, you know, everyday lamb that's offered in the temple. But the very lamb of God himself, fully God, fully man, Jesus himself. And he comes to take away the sin of the world. The world. And we know in the Old Testament that when you made sacrifices Lamb, a goat, a bull, these sacrifices were for yourself as a personal sacrifice. And so you make personal sacrifices or sometimes you make the sacrifice on behalf of your family. And uh, even the case of Job for his friends and the high priest of Israel once a year would make a sacrifice on behalf of the nation. But the Gospel of John says that this is Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. It's the, what the world needs. That the whole world is covered in sin, in darkness, but Jesus comes to take away the sin of the entire world. But he is also a personal savior as well. And he comes to take away not only the sin of the world, but your sin, my sin personally as well. And this is why Jesus comes. He came to end all the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice of all the sacrifices. No more sacrifices needed. He is the substitute that we all needed who went for us on the cross. This is the core truth of the gospel. 
This is why Jesus comes. You know, the cross shows that we are truly sinners. That we have this deep need. But most people, when we think of sin, we think of sin as all the bad things that we've done, right? Oh, those thoughts that I shouldn't have, I... You know, I, I shouldn't have lied there. I shouldn't have fudged on the truth a little bit there. Um, you know, I, I did a couple things, you know, wrong here. The, the things I, I, we think of the bad things. But sin is not just the bad things that we've done. Sin at the very core is, it's even all the good things that we do, but for all the wrong reasons. It's all the, the, the things that we do, in a sense, to save ourselves or all the, the ways that we, we try to use good things in our life. But these things have ultimately replaced God in our life. It's this life of this independence from God. I was um, sharing this on Friday, but one of my good friends um, in China, his wife, she talked about growing up, her parents... They are like the kindest people that you could ever meet. They're so nice. They're so kind. They're so courteous. And, you know, she never saw her dad lose his temper. Um, You know, even when she didn't do well at school, you know, a lot of Asian parents, right, they just, they're very hard on their kids. Why, you know, you need to like shape up or whatever. But he was always just so encouraging. It's okay. And um, even now as as a married couple, uh, she, these parents, they're just very, very sensitive to, um, to their daughter and to their son-in-law. And they don't want to interfere with them. And so they're very careful to, like, you know, give them their space and not to be imposing or overbearing and those kind of things. But here's the problem is that they don't know Jesus. On the outside, the kindest, most upright, the most moral people that you can kind of see and imagine But there is secretly, and she was saying this, there's secretly this pride. This pride that that they're better than other people. They're kinder. They're more moral. And there's a secret pride. But even these good things that they use, these good things that they kind of rely upon to, in a sense, make themselves feel like they're worthy people and they, they cannot receive Jesus because they do not see their need for Jesus. They do not see that they are sinners. They cannot see their need for Jesus. Why do I need to be saved? I'm a good person. I'm moral. I'm kind. I'm decent. I treat my kids well. I try to be good to the people around me the best I can. That's the mentality. But what are they relying on? They are relying on their own goodness. And even their own goodness is getting in the way of seeing their need for Jesus. Their own goodness is what has defined them. And so they do not know Jesus because they cannot see their need for a Savior. And if you don't see your need for Jesus, if you do not see your your sin You cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. You know, Jesus in John chapter 3, he comes and in John chapter 3, this Nicodemus, this Pharisee comes to Jesus at night. You know, 
I've done all the, you know, it's like I, I, this, this Pharisee who has this good reputation, he's done everything he could, he knows right. But Jesus says to him, you must be born again. You're religious. Um, you, you, know, you have, yeah, you have your, uh, you know the, the Old Testament scriptures, you've memorized it, uh, the, the, the temple, attendance, whatever, all these things, but you don't have real life. You don't have spiritual life. You must be born again. And Nicodemus has to be seen by Jesus, his sin and his need for, for saving, for salvation. Uh, the one who is so righteous and so good. But you must trust in the finished work of Christ. You must trust in the finished work of Christ himself. And let me tell you this, to give up not just your bad things, not just your sin, but to give up relying on your good things, your good qualities, and to trust completely in Christ alone is much, much harder than you may even think. Why do you think that even though, um, as Christians, right, uh, we come to church, we try to come to church regularly, uh, we try to, um, you know, we try to be sincere in understanding God's word and truth and all these things. But why do you think that there's so much restlessness sometimes in the heart? So much anxiety and so much, um, so much of our hearts that just is not at peace. When it comes down to it, it is because we are relying on things other than Jesus Christ for our salvation. I had this woman uh, who was part of a discipleship group in China. And uh, she was constantly tormented with not knowing if she was saved or not. Um, she kept thinking that she's just so evil and she's so terrible and all these things. And, um, you know, I would just give her a bunch of scriptures. I, we would go through the book of Romans. Um, you know, I, I would have her read through uh, Romans, and we would talk about it and all these different things. And, uh, you know, but she just kept, just kept being tormented uh, this whole time. And after a while, I think, you know, God began to just work in her heart. And then she finally wrote to me, and she wrote these words, and she said this. She says, for a long time, I was troubled by the sins and evil thoughts I had. I was frightened by some of them. I prefer that I were dead instead of the evil thoughts happening. I doubted my salvation. I invited Jesus into my heart again and again, hoping for my life to be changed. I even thought maybe I was not God's chosen one since my life didn't change at all. It was a long, dark time, and I didn't understand God's love. But she goes on to write, Now I choose to believe in God's word. It says, God so loved the world. It's true, and the world includes me. When the fleeting thoughts come, I admit I'm such a bad sinner, but I turn to Jesus. It's he who made salvation for me, denied himself, saved me, and loves me always. I was saved through the righteousness of Christ. I learned to surrender to Jesus. And these were beautiful words. If you look at, Je if you look at this woman, what was she relying on before? What was she trusting in? She was trusting, basing her salvation on her own goodness, right? She was just trusting her ability to do things right. 
And so she was just tormented. She knew her sin. She knew how there were these evil thoughts that were going through, but she kept relying upon herself. But then when she finally looked to Jesus, when she put her trust in Jesus, this is when she was set free. This is when she really started to grow, to know. And this is when the shift happens. Um, it's very, very easy for us to say you must trust in Jesus. In reality, it's harder than we think many times. And the way it comes out is through your anxieties. It's so easy for us to perform and to rely upon the law or to perform, rely upon uh, the things that we do. But to shift our focus, our trust completely on Jesus the gospel says this. The gospel says, I'm not good enough. But Christ is the one who says, Christ is good enough, and I am in Christ, and therefore God accepts me. This is what the gospel is about. All religions, what do all religions say? All religions say that you've got to work for your salvation. And because all religions say this, what happens? People never quite know if they're going to make it. This is what religions do. Buddha, um, his famous last words were this. He says a few things as far as like following his teaching, but his last words were this. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. He came to accomplish the salvation. He did all the work. You can see the complete difference, right? Work hard, perform, like prove yourself. Jesus says, I've done it for you. I've proved it for you. I did the work. And now what Jesus calls us to do is to rest in his work, to rest in his salvation, right? Let me ask you this. What is it that steals the deep sense of peace in your heart and mind? What is it that steals that joy, that, that sense of rest in the heart? We live in a really restless culture. And we're always thinking of all these things of, you know, we're thinking about our job, our, our you know, retirement of this. You know, we're thinking about what someone said about the, us. or what, There's all kinds of things that we're thinking about. But are you, are you resting in Jesus or are you resting on these other things? For Pilate, it was his political career and advancement. For the Jewish leaders, it was the peace and prosper prosperity of their nation. Um, you know, I was having this, this conversation. Uh, in fact, Twiner, uh, we're just talking this morning, right? And I will I'll admit to you, I'll, you know, as a pastor, um, this truth is so, so important for me. When Jesus says it is finished, it means that as a pastor that I can rest. You know why? Because it is always busy. <laughs> always busy for me. And honestly, the work, and it's not just for me, it's for, I mean, all of you, right? Mothers, stay-at-home mothers, in the marketplace, the work never ends. It never ends as a student, right? When you're done with your test, it's like the next test, the next paper you got to work on. Uh, you think about college, right? The college letters have come out. And it's like, you know, am I going to make it to this school? Am I going to get to that school? I might, you know, and like it, you're always 
thinking about, well, I've got to like perform. I got to, I got to achieve this. I got to accomplish this. And there's, there's always a sense of restlessness. And that's, and we find that throughout life. Once you try to get into a good college, then you got to graduate. And then once that, you got to find a good job. And once you get a good job, you got to prove yourself at work. And, and so there's always this restlessness all throughout, right? There's always more people I could see. There's always people in my mind, oh, I've got to talk to this person. I've got to make an appointment. I've got to see this person. And there's always more I could do to work on this, the, you know, the Bible say, or whatever, any number of things, projects that are going on. There's not enough hours in the day. But if in my heart I'm not resting in the finished work of Jesus, these things will just overwhelm me. And it will overwhelm you as well in life. Can you say in your heart, because Jesus did the work, he accomplished the work above all work. He did the final work of salvation. Therefore, my heart can rest, which means that I can still do what I need to do. And it's crazy. Work is crazy. Um, things are crazy. And there's always all these things that are going on. And I will do my best. I will work hard. But even as I'm working hard, my heart can be at peace. It can really rest because my rest does not depend upon what I can accomplish, upon what's happening around me, but my rest is in Jesus and his work. You can rest because Jesus did the work already. This is what the cross means. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. This is what it means to say that not only am I repenting of the bad things. Yes, you must repent of the bad things. But you must also repent of all the ways that you are resting in things other than Jesus. All the good things that are happening. All the good things in life that take our rest away from Jesus himself. That's what it means to really repent. That's what it means to really take in the gospel. To say Jesus did the work. And Jesus is a total savior for total sinners. Us who are shot through and we're still striving, just like Buddha, work hard for your salvation. We're still seeking to save ourselves in some way. We're still trying to preserve our life. We're still trying to grasp for security, grasp for safety. We're still trying to grasp for all these things in life. Rather than saying, Jesus, your work, your love for me is what my heart truly needs. And I'm going to rest in you alone. Your work. This is what my heart needs. And this is who Jesus is. His finished work for those who know their desperate need for him. Let's pray. Lord, um,